As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Different type of episode today. No Ryan, no Graham, no Joe. But instead, it's me talking to Simon Cooper, author of The Barcelona Complex, Lionel Messi, and the Making and Unmaking of the World's Greatest Soccer Club. I asked Simon a lot of questions about his new book, about the current state of Barcelona, how they got to this position, but how they sort of developed along the way from Johan Krauf. Uh, That is an exaggerated pronunciation. I'm trying to do my best here with that one. Uh, But how they kind of evolved from that point to today. And then the sort of missteps that got bigger and bigger. Uh, So hopefully you all enjoy that chat. Uh, You will also be able to find uh, in this week's shows our weekend review. That was the four of us. And then the Americans Abroad Review with myself and Joe Lowry. We've got another listener questions episode coming up this week as well as Allocation Disorder on Friday. In there as well, a Soccer 101 episode. It's going to be me and Graham talking about why Scotland isn't better at the football. So please do check out all those different episodes at your leisure. But for now, here's me talking to Simon. Joining me today is Simon Cooper, author of many excellent soccer books, many of which I'm assuming our listeners have read. His latest is no exception. Simon, thank you for being here and for your latest work, which gives some insight into the present situation of Barcelona, but also the historic uh, situation of Barcelona. Thanks for having me. Uh, So I wanted to start off with the kind of present situation, not necessarily of Barcelona, but of your book, because I'm assuming when you decided to write this, things were not as they are now, unless you started writing the book like a week ago, which I know not to be the case. So what was the original idea for the book and how did it evolve uh, to what it became? Yeah, it became something very different in the writing. So 
I mean, in some ways, it starts nearly 30 years ago in 1992 when I walk into the club for the first time. I was a young man with a torn jacket, hoping to interview my childhood hero, Johan Kev, who we'll come to, who was then the coach of the club. But really, I decided to write this book in early 2019. I visited the club again, writing an article for my newspaper, the Financial Times, and I realized, wow, they're really opening almost all their doors to me. They're letting me speak to whoever I want to speak to. They're being incredibly helpful, which is very rare in modern soccer. So I wrote the article and I said to my contacts at the club, if I wrote a book, would you still open doors? And they said, yeah, sure. And so I began visiting the club and interviewing to everyone top to bottom, you know, presidents and players, but also nutritionists, doctors, psychologists, youth coaches, trying to get a real picture of the whole club as a workplace, what it's like day to day. And when I began, I thought I was going to write the story of greatness, you know, from Johan Cruyff through Guardiola to Messi and this construction of this sort of beautiful human creation. And the book is that, but I realized a couple of months in that I'd also be writing the story of decline. I think the, the moment where, where that started to become very clear to me was they had one foot in the Champions League final in 2019. Soon after I'd begun writing, they beat Liverpool 3-0 at home. And most people then would have said, look, they're going to win the Champions League. They're already Spanish champions. And then you'll remember they go to Anfield, they lose 4-0. And suddenly you see, wow, there's not just cracks in the ceiling. This whole thing is collapsing. And soon after that, you start to see financial problems. While I'm writing, Messi tried to leave. And so it became the story of the rise, but also of the fall, the making and the unmaking of Barca. That's, that's what the book is in the end. And it is called The Barcelona Complex, Lionel Messi and the Making and Unmaking of the World's Greatest Soccer Club. Uh, when you're interviewing all of these different people with Barcelona, were there ever moments where you were being told one thing and then a week later... Like maybe it was uh, written about that that was no longer the case. Like how much were you getting spin versus truth, do you think? I think I got a lot of truth. And this sounds immodest, but I think it's also because of the kinds of interviews I did. A lot of the people I spoke to were people who'd worked in the club for decades in some cases. And I tended to speak to them on a background basis, which in journalism means that you can use the information, you can use what they say, but you can't attribute it to them, that you can't quote them by name. So most people in the club, you're not allowed to quote by name. So I had all these interviews where people would speak very freely because I wasn't going to use their name. And so I didn't feel that I was hearing one thing and then learning that the other was true. I think the way that can happen is when you're believing the spin that candidates were giving, that Laporta was giving, Juan Laporta, the president, when he was running for president in early 2021. There were presidential elections. And Laporta was saying, well, when I'm elected president, of course, Messi will stay. We'll have an asado together, an Argentinian barbecue. And he likes me, so he'll stay. And I'm thinking, hang on, that sounds very unlikely to me. Uh, there's no money. And uh, Laporta was saying, yeah, and we're going to try and sign Mbappe. We're going to try and sign Haaland. And I was thinking, how are you going to do that? You don't have any money. So there is a lot of spin going on from Barca, but it's mostly from the president. In the sense of the most powerful people, when they speak by name, that's when you have to be most distrustful. <laughs> and and when you are like in these interviews, are you getting these opportunities, do you think, because of the existing relationship and the kind of longstanding nature of that relationship? Or do you think some of it at least relates to the idea that Barcelona still have a 
sort of small club mentality. And for people who maybe haven't read the book, can you explain what that is? Because sometimes when we talk about a small club mentality, we're saying like, oh, they're not, they don't have great vision. They don't have ideas for how to grow and expand. And I don't think that's the case for Barcelona. I think it's more so that they function as a small club where they have cooks setting tables, I think was one of your experiences. Yeah, I mean, I would describe it not so much as a small club as as a sort of local club, a family club, yeah. and a real club. So you can't call them a franchise. They're not a franchise of anything. You can't call them a, a business. They don't think of themselves as a business. What this is is a, a local club which is run by local people who most of them kind of born in Barcelona and expect to die in Barcelona. Those are the people who get elected presidents as well, who become the youth coaches, who become the cooks and the psychologists. And so it's a club where everybody knows each other and where relationships are very long-term and intimate. And of course, there's all the bickering that you get in long-term and intimate relationships and people fall out, the people they've known since childhood, but they have known each other since childhood. And so I think one thing that happened over the 30 years I visited the club is to some degree in the minds of the people I would meet there again and again, I became a sort of club member. And um, not to be immodest, but I think it's important that for the writing of this book, that one year I won this sports writing prize at FC Barcelona Awards. And since then, they regarded me really as, as in a way, a member, as I say. And when I was there in 2019, they were giving the award to this Italian journalist, a woman called Emanuela Odissio. And they said to me, yeah, you're going to be here when we're having the lunch room, Manuela. You have to be there. You have to be at the lunch. They kept saying that. And then I go to this lunch and the president's there and various high officials and Emanuela and various other previous winners. And we sit around for three or four hours drinking beautiful wines, having lovely food, which is also very Barcelona. And that's when I realized, hey, very unusually in soccer, I'm on the inside. I think another thing that helped is I write for the Financial Times. And I don't think people at Barcelona necessarily read the Financial Times, but they're quite impressed by the sort of Anglo world and by the snob appeal, if you like, of the name of Financial Times. And so that also encouraged them to open their doors to me. They're much more suspicious in a way of Spanish journalists from Madrid, but also, let's say, of Catalan journalists from Barcelona, because they really worry what's written in the local media about themselves because they're local people. They don't so much worry about what's written in the international media. And when I published the book, didn't get any um, you know, negative noises at all from Barcelona. I got one lovely email from one of my contacts who said, I've received your book. I'm so happy you did it. Uh, congratulations to you. And I wrote back to the guy and I said, look, you're a gentleman because Barcelona never once tried to interfere in anything that I was writing. They, they, they let me write the book, but they never tried to censor it. Is there an element to that of arrogance potentially that there's an idea of like we're this huge club what could this one person do or is it genuinely do you think that they just didn't want to intervene because that does also seem like a foundational aspect of them at least from Cruyff and on Krauf and on however you're supposed to pronounce that I apologize to you uh but like is there an idea of yeah we're supposed to be kind of exposed you're supposed to see the flaws we're supposed to kind of deal with these issues or was it more so we're this gigantic club what's the worst that can happen I think it's more uh, who cares what this gringo writes in English. It, <laughs> uh, it's, they get very upset with what a local journalist will say on huh. local radio at you know, 1 a.m. or what's the front page of the, uh, let's say, sports, the local uh, sports, one of the local sports dailies. They get very upset about that. And there have been cases in the past of presidents threatening to break the legs of recalcitrant local journalists or 
um, sort of buying off journalists with lovely foreign trips. Yeah, it's, it, that's part of the localism of Barcelona. They care much more about what is written in the newspapers and said on the radio stations that they and their friends and their children and their business partners and the waiters in the local cafes who serve them coffee listen to than what some guy is writing in a book in English. I, I think one of my favorite things about the book is how I think I expected it to be very maybe Financial Times, very like here's the nuances of this transfer and a lot of financial details about like how the club got to this current situation. And instead, it's much more of like almost a biography. It's much more a story of the of the club and how they sort of shook off a defeatist mentality, evolved and changed. And then to some extent, how the success breeds not necessarily failure, but just breeds more problems than you might expect. And I think the way you were able to thread that needle and keep that narrative in a way that, like, I, I just, it really is a page turner. Even if you're not a big fan of soccer, I think people will enjoy it because it, it tells the story of this team as almost this sort of living organism and how it evolves and how the youth teams factor into it and how physios and handball instructors and watching basketball can all be part of how this this club grows. And and I want to go back to the beginning of that a little bit to ask you about the sort of defeatist mentality they had early on and how that came to be. Because for younger fans, for folks like myself, uh, I guess I'm going to count myself as still younger, you know, we're used to Barcelona winning everything and being dominant and tiki-taka and pep and maybe less familiar with the idea that they used to be a club that were dominated in Spain for many different reasons, but they were not that dominant club. So can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's very important in the club's mentality that it's a second city club. So Madrid is the capital of Spain and Barcelona is the capital of this region of Catalonia, which is a region that for centuries has sort of thought of itself as a nation where many people wanted to be an independent state, but which has always been part of Spain. And so there's that kind of frustration, if you like, of um, we're under the thumb of Madrid, both politically and in football terms. And so they saw themselves as the club of losers, the club where the referees bosses in Madrid or the prime minister in Madrid or uh, General Franco, the dictator in Madrid, would in some way always favor real Madrid. And they were doomed to lose and they do lose. So in, if you go back to 1992, the start of 1992, Barcelona have never won the Champions League and Real Madrid by that point have won six. And Barcelona have won relatively few titles. So you've got this huge club with enormous passionate support. And they, they usually lose. And they saw themselves, they expected to lose. They saw themselves as losers. And then Johan Cruyff comes in. And the book in part is a biography of Cruyff linked to a biography of Messi, who are the two kind of great peaks of the club, the two geniuses who create the modern club. And Cruyff comes in, and he's not just the best footballer of the 1970s. And later, you know, the most original coach of the 80s and 90s. He's possibly the most interesting thinker on football, the most interesting man in football that I've ever encountered. It's probably because I grew up in the Netherlands, I feel this way, but I think it's genuinely true. Krav sort of invented the soccer of today, the soccer, the attacking, pressing game, passing game, played by teams like Bayern Munich or Liverpool or Italy at the Euro. It's his. And he invented it sort of as a teenager at Ajax with the then coach of Linus Michels. And so he comes in and he says, well, I'm a winner, so we're winners. If I'm here, it means that we're going to win. And he really does sort of transform the mentality. He expects to win, you know, whenever his team walks out onto the field. 
And he also has a way to win. He has these brilliant tactics. He has a brilliant ideas about how to coach youngsters, which pay off in the best ever generation to come out of any youth academy in the history of football. The Messi, Xavi, Iniesta generation, all these guys who come out of the Barca Academy within less than a decade of each other. And so that's really where Barca changes. But even when Messi makes his debut in 2004, they've still only won one Champions League in their history. Uh, very few people in 2004 would have said, well, uh, Barcelona are one of the best clubs in European football. I mean, they're a big club, but they're not a successful club particularly. And when he makes his senior debut, is it true that it was against Jose Mourinho? Because that sort of blew my mind. Yeah, it's an amazing fact. It's a friendly match, so it's not his official debut. But in it 2000, still I don't care. It still counts, yeah. It's too good a story <laughs> not to use. In 2003, <laughs> Messi is just 16, and they play, I think it's a summer friendly against FC Porto, then managed by this young, up-and-coming Portuguese coach, of whom we will hear a lot more later, Jose Mourinho, who becomes not just Messi's biggest adversary, but also one of Messi's greatest admirers. And Mourinho, you know, I quote him in the book as saying, the Barcelona of Guardiola is the best football team of the last few decades. So, yeah, his battle with Mourinho starts as a 16-year-old already uh, in that friendly match. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Another thing I really enjoyed about the book, being totally honest, sometimes with with books about a club, with books about an individual player, the mythologizing, the myth-making is still very much intertwined with the kind of DNA of the piece. With yours, I like, like with Krauf, how much you dispel of the, no, he didn't boycott the 78 World Cup because he didn't like the military junta. Even the story about naming his son Jordi, I think so often is this, he, he did it in defiance of Franco and he did it. To, and it was mostly just like, no, nah, I just like that name. And I think it's very interesting because it shows the more human side, which did seem to be, an aspect that you were pretty interested in that you wrote about, about how these players live, especially the modern players and what their lives are like. How important was that for you to capture the sort of the human aspect of these players who so often work very hard to not show us that human aspect? I've always wanted writing about football or writing about anything to write about great people or any people as human beings and not as heroes, not as demigods. Um, And, I think people are much more interesting when you describe them insofar as it's possible, as they really are, warts and all, three-dimensional, flawed like you and me. But footballers are not so different from us. They have this, this one gift that we don't have, but otherwise they have many of the same issues that all the rest of us have. And Crave is such a fascinating figure. I mean, I, I began taking notes for a biography of him 20 years ago. Never wrote it, but this is my best attempt at describing the man, this this 
infuriating, fascinating man with whom, as I described in the book, I had a falling out myself. And Messi as well, I wanted to describe as a person because I don't think anyone had managed to do that particularly. It's we we all admire him beyond belief as a as a footballer. And I too went into the book thinking there's not much to say about him as a personality. He's not an interesting person. And I came away thinking completely differently. In the book, I try and describe him as the most powerful figure inside Barcelona, the guy everyone's afraid of, who doesn't say much, but when he says a word, everyone listens. The whole club is trying to do his will all the time. So yeah, it's very much a book that tries to take great people and respect their greatness, but to treat them as people. What is it like to have a falling out with a globally famous footballer? Like, I've asked a question or two that people didn't like. And even then, I was sort of like, ugh, that didn't go well. I can't imagine what it would be like to have a, a straight-up falling out. Well, it was very upsetting. I mean, um, read the book to get the full details of the falling out. But Crave did what Crave does in these situations, which is he lashes out, becomes very aggressive, and he gets his pet lapdogs in the Dutch media at the time to write nasty articles attacking me. So, yeah, it was very hard. I was quite young. I was 30 at the time. He was my childhood hero. If anyone else has had a worse experience with their childhood hero, I don't want to hear it. So, yeah, that that was hard. But I've always felt as a journalist that I I try not to get too close to people I write about. I, I try and get to know them, but not to become dependent on them and to write things that they will like so I can go back to them. I tend to write my books thinking, okay, that was it. That was the end of the project. And I write what I believe is true. And if they don't like it, well, tough, but that's what I'm trying to do. Wow. I, I just, I still, I, I think for me, I've talked about this on the show before, that Krauf is one of the players that I, I think I admire the most and enjoy learning about him and the way he thought and how he did things and simultaneously feel confident saying that if I met him, I would not like him he seems like the type of person who does prove the idea of never meet your heroes to be true and it seems like you have kind of lived that experience uh so i appreciate you sharing it in the book but also apologize that that's the way that played out uh i actually did like him and i think there were there were two ways he behaved one is he was a very sort of easygoing ordinary bloke when there was no conflict nothing to win when there was it was just a meeting with people. He was very ordinary in his way. He didn't kind of stand on ceremony. He was a very, he liked to talk. He was uh, quite cheerful most of the time. So I had a good time with him, the two hours we spent together. And the other Krauf is the Krauf who has to win every confrontation, the Krauf who sees everything as, as a competition, uh, the Krauf who cheated at Monopoly when he played with his children because he couldn't bear to lose. So... I, I didn't come away disliking him. I came away understanding better what an impossible man he could be. How similar did you find him to Lionel Messi? Because there are obvious uh, differences between the two, but two things that stood out to me from the book were one, that they both do seem to have that I want to win everything always. Messi wants to win soccer tennis 7-0 or 11-0 or whatever the scoreline was. He wants to, to skunk his opponent. But then also both of them... I, it felt like maybe not always the most effective communicators. Cruyff, it seemed to be limitations in his language and in his word choice. But then for Messi, it just seems to be that he prefers to be quiet. Yeah, I mean, that, that is also a difference in that Cruyff likes to talk all the time and Messi doesn't like to talk at all. But what they both have is they want to they win and they, wanna, they feel it's important for them to dominate, uh, to have power and player power that players should have an important role in decision-making is sort of out of fashion in soccer now. 
But Craig thought it was very important that the best player should have a say in tactics and which players you buy and sell and who should be the coach because he said you've got to make the best player responsible. If you say, so Messi is given the power essentially in 2010 to say, look, I don't like Zlatan Ibrahimovic in the team. When I run into the middle, I don't want to see this massive Swede shouting, standing in my way and trying to get me to pass him the ball. And so Barcelona say, okay, well, we just bought Ibrahimovic, but if you don't want him, then we'll put him on the bench and we'll sell him, which they did. And that's a big decision to make. I mean, it costs them a lot of money. Uh, they appointed coaches who Messi liked, like Tata Martino or Tito Villanova. And, you know, I've, I, I've hear, heard a lot of people say in response to the book, um, it's crazy that Messi had all this power or Simon's trying to in some way defame Messi by suggesting he made the decisions. I don't think it's crazy at all that the most important player, the, the biggest figure in your club should have power. Of course he should. Of course when you buy or sell a player, you should think, what does Leo want? Because you're building your team around him. And so both Krauf and both and Messi become the most powerful person in the club. And that has upsides and downsides. But I totally understand why Barcelona gave them both all this power. But in some ways, are a lot of the problems today a result of giving Messi that power? Not, not saying that it's Messi who caused things, but just as you become successful you in some ways become a victim of your own success and you want to preserve that and maybe that means you're extending his contract every single year and making it more favorable but it also means maybe veering away from some of the philosophies specifically the academy that got you there how much do you think their sort of present financial bind is linked to basically trying to keep Messi happy I mean I think it's more linked to trying to keep his father Jorge Messi happy because in a family, it's a fair distinction, yeah. It's an important distinction, I think, because in a family like that, the athlete is told, you just play, we'll do the rest, we'll take care of everything else. And it becomes a sort of family business where you've got one person playing and other people managing money and somebody might be managing media, etc. And so Messi didn't negotiate his salary. Messi didn't probably follow that at all closely. Messi didn't uh, evade taxes. His father, Jorge, who fancied himself as a brilliant businessman, would go to the club every year and say, you've got to pay my son more, otherwise he might leave this summer. And so in the end, you get Messi earning something like $150 million a year, which is about as much as a top-class team all by itself, all by himself. So alone, he earns as much as a, another top-class team might earn, probably three times more than any other player in the game in salary. And I think that's more Jorge Messi's doing than, than Leo Messi. So that is partly, yes, uh, Barcelona trying to please Messi, sell the farm. And there are other things that aren't Messi's fault. That You know, they spend well over a billion dollars on transfers from 2014 through 2019, and they keep buying the wrong players. And then there's also the, um, you, you mentioned the academy. And I've heard a lot from people saying, oh, well, they should just go back to relying on the academy. The academy gave them this brilliant Messi, Savi, and Yesa generation, the world's best footballer plus the team that wins the World Cup for Spain in 2010, they should just do it again. Just give the kids a chance. And I don't believe that at all. I think that a generation like that is a one-off. And it happened in part through luck and in part because Johan Cruyff in the 90s was 20 years ahead of his time. He creates this academy that's all about a sort of university of the past. It's all about can you pass and which is very happy to take on short players who are out of favor at other clubs yeah. at the time. 
So Crowfash believes that short players like himself, like Messi, like Iniesta and Xavi, are better footballers because they have to be able to pass quickly to not be trampled underfoot by the big guys. And so what happens in the next, next 20 years when Barcelona's academy proves itself so brilliantly is everyone imitates the Masia. Everyone in the European soccer, at least, imitates Barcelona's academy and favours the pass and favours short players and also, I think, adopts the Barcelona way of treating kids nicely, which is a, not just the right thing to do, but also a competitive advantage because it means you don't have children leaving the academies because they can't take the bullying or can't take being shouted at by horrible coaches, etc., so what happens is everyone becomes the Masia and you see that first German football and later even English football produces all these FC Barcelona type players. You know, if you look at little English players of today, like Phil Foden or Jaden Sancho or Bakayo Saka, you see these guys look like Barcelona players of 15 years ago. And what's happened is English academies are now producing that kind of player. So the Masia has lost its competitive advantage. And if you're saying, can a youth academy produce a team that can challenge, say, in the top 10 of European football? Well, nobody does. I I don't think any club in Europe does that. All the top 10 teams in Europe are very largely bought. And the Masia is not cutting edge anymore. So why should Barcelona be able to do that? No, I think that's a fantasy that that ship has sailed. How much does the involvement and then absence of Pep Guardiola factor into that? Because I, it feels as though he is the person, at least to me, who comes off the best in your book. Uh, not that anybody comes off bad, but just that it seems to be he is a person who uh, is basically given the opportunity by Cruyff because he would have been undervalued. He would have been a player that maybe is too slow or too awkward or too skinny and too injured, uh, but he he thrives. And then he seems to embrace La Masia. He seems to be the one who is knows every single player, knows every single coach, knows everything that's happening. And my assumption is that if you want your academy to function and those players to come in, you also have to have a manager who knows all those players and knows what their strengths are and knows how to get them into the team and then is able to recognize, okay, we don't have a player who can do this, so we do need to spend some money there. And it felt to me at least like as he leaves, that decisiveness and that vision for how to implement young players into the squad dissipates a bit. Maybe it comes back a tiny bit with Luis Enrique, but for the most part it felt like Pep was the one who really took the keys from Krauf and then kept it going. Yeah, I mean, Guardiola is not original like Kraus, but he is Kraus' son in football, and he is a more rigorous, more organized coach than Kraus. And what Guardiola can do, which nobody at Barcelona managed to do, is keep updating himself. I mean, nobody else in coaching seems able to do that. Look at how Mourinho has been left behind by changes in the game. But, but Guardiola, you know, I know people say he spends an enormous amount of money, which, of course, he does. But still, he always manages to construct one of the best teams of each era and one of the most exciting teams. He did it at Barcelona, then at Bayern, then at Manchester City. And, you know, I don't attach too much importance to who wins or loses a Champions League final. I think there's a huge amount of luck in a one-off game like that. Clearly, he's put together a great team. So, yeah, he does come off well. And it's true that when Guardiola was head coach, he knew the kids from the Masia. And so he was willing to give a chance to players who looked not quite right, uh, the young Sergio Busquets, you know, he's slow, he can't really turn, um, he never gives a brilliant 30-metre pass, he doesn't dribble, he doesn't score goals. So when you watch the game, you can miss Busquets. But because Guardiola knew Busquets from having coached him in the youth teams, 
And at one point, he has to bring Busquets into the first team in 2008 because Busquets has been benched in the B team. So Guardiola knew that Busquets was brilliant when nobody else saw it. There was Pedro, who at some point was in the C team in 2008. And Guardiola has coached Pedro in the B team, and he knows Pedro isn't a brilliant player, but he can do a job. And so he brings these two guys into the first team, whereas another coach, under another coach, they might never have made that step. Amazing to say, I came away from the book thinking, if Busquets had left Barcelona, we might not now know who he is. He might not have had that career. So he owes a lot of it to to Guardiola, yeah. And when Guardiola leaves, something goes. But Guardiola also understood to stay at the top as a coach. You have to renew yourself. So he goes to New York. He has a sabbatical. He gets all sorts of ideas from outside football. And at Bayern, he returns as a new kind of coach. He's updated himself. Now, that's signally what Barcelona failed to do the last 10 years without Guardiola. They've sort of become lazy. When you're number one, you stop thinking. You think everything you do is working out. You stop renewing yourself. You stop studying other teams to see what they're doing. And there's so much money coming in when you're number one that you just spend it too easily. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. And with Pep, when Pep departs, is it basically, would you draw it as a line of managerial influence in the squad sort of going down as Messi's influence goes up? Is that about how it goes after Pep's departure? Or is it a little bit wavier, a little bit more intermittent? I would definitely say the player's influence rises. But I think Guardiola would be the first to say that when he was coached, the players were extremely important too. Because you're coaching players 
like Busquets, Iniesta, Messi, you don't tell those guys what to do. You don't tell Busquets, Sergio, when you get the ball, you draw your opponent towards you and then you pass the ball into the space behind him. Busquets knows that better than you could. I mean, data analysts at the club told me we would never give any playing advice to these guys. We what Instead, we watch Busquets and Messi. We watch what their decision-making to understand how football works. So no coach is that important. What Guardiola could do was he had the patience to spend two days analysing the opposition before each game, which is very important. So he could say to his players, against this team, their right back can't do this. So this is how we're going to find a hole behind their right back. So that was important. He imposed rules like the five-second rule, where when we lose the ball, we hunt for five seconds to get it back. The 15-pass rule, when we have the ball, we pass 15 passes to get ourselves into the right position before we launch an attack. But, you know, coaching players like that, the coach, the role of the coach I've always felt is over, over, is exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Now, it's certainly true that by the time Guardiola leaves in 2012, you have the best players in the world. Most of these guys are world champions. They've won Champions Leagues. They've won multiple Spanish titles. The coach becomes more a kind of consultant figure, somebody who can give them a little bit of information about the next opponent, who can, who has, somebody has to make the final decision about you know the lineup. But really, with a team like that, the coach is not so important anymore. What do you then personally feel is the best way to write about or cover an individual game? Because I think I probably err on the side of like the coach is this dictator and everything is determined by them and every little thing is drilled and Pep tells Raheem Sterling to take a step to the left and that's why that goal happened. And I think reading your book maybe feeling a little bit more like that might be too much uh, credit to managers, especially when we talk about MSN, when it was Messi, Suarez, Neymar, and how that they sort of figured out how to play on their own. That was not a thing I was really expecting to learn. But then thinking about it, I guess I shouldn't be surprised because, yeah, those guys are very good at what they do. They're going to figure it out, and you kind of want them to figure it out. So back to the question, how do you think we could improve the way we write about games, the way we talk about footballers, and the way we talk about the game itself? Um, I wouldn't give as much importance to the coach as that. When I interviewed Ernesto Valverde, who was then the head coach just over two years ago, he said, look, the best players analyze and interpret football better than I do. And he said, this is a game without timeouts. So if you compare it to gridiron football, you know, there are plays where every player has a task and that's sort of decided by the coach. And the coach can even send on messages saying, we're going to run this play now. So then gridiron football, clearly the coach are important. Basketball, Valverde pointed out, you get timeouts. So every few minutes, the coach can tell the players what he wants them to do. Obviously, basketball players have a lot more freedom than in gridiron, but less than in soccer. In soccer, you know, Valverde says, I I can tell them something, but then for 45 minutes, they do their own thing. And so, you know, I was watching the Champions League final 2011. You asked about how to write about a game. Barcelona-Manchester United, one of Barcelona's greatest ever games. And in the beginning, United have a lot of pressure. They, they do very well in the first 10 minutes. And what you see after about 10 minutes is that Savi and Iniesta retreat about 10, 20 meters. And so they have closed up a hole. There was a big gap between the Barca defense and midfield. Savi and Iniesta retreat, and that hole is gone. And suddenly, for the next 80 minutes, it's all Barcelona. Now, did Guardiola tell them to do that? 
I don't know. I sort of doubt it. I think that Safi and Iniesta are perfectly capable of seeing, hang on a minute, the space has got too big. We need to fill in that space now. And they do it. And in fact, I mean, that's why they're great players. If you had to tell Safi and Iniesta, guys, you need to retreat 20 meters because the space has opened up. If you had to tell them that, then they wouldn't be great players. So I think that a lot of these decisions are made sometimes almost semi-consciously or unconsciously by players who just sense, I need to be 10 meters forward, I need to be 10 meters back. And sometimes, you know, in Krauf's day, Krauf would tell the team on the field when he was playing, this is what we're going to do. And Messi, you don't see him talk, but Messi will go up to a teammate and say, stop passing to the left, stop passing to the right, that kind of thing. And that's really important. Uh, on the field, players can communicate with each other quite easily. The coach can't really communicate with them at all. So when you watch Guardiola during games, you see him shouting and shouting from the bench and the TV camera will pan out to Guardiola shouting. What's he shouting? I bet none of his players know. Maybe even when the stadiums were empty, they might have had a sense, but otherwise not. So, yeah, how's it cover the game? Write about it much, much more from the player point of view, I would say. Then let's stick with the player point of view for a moment. How do you think the move to PSG will play out for Lionel Messi? That's a big question, obviously, but reading about him and the way he kind of values his family, he values his friends, but also has had so much influence and power at Barcelona, he will obviously have a lot of influence and power at PSG, but there's lots of other personalities there. And, and I just wonder how different you think it will be or how similar you think it will be. I think I'd separate... A couple of things about PSG. On the field, Messi is going to be just fine. He He's good at playing football. That's not a problem. And he will love playing with better players than he's been playing with at Barcelona the last year or so. And he'll love playing with Neymar and Mbappe. I think in some ways the Neymar he enjoyed playing with so much at Barcelona no longer exists. That was a young, very quick winger with brilliant technique. And now you have an older, slower number 10 with brilliant technique. So I think it will be a game much more of them out on the wing, sort of dribbling, making individual moves, and then feeding Mbappe, who I think, if he stays, would be a great foil for Messi, the kind of very fast goal-scoring striker that Messi likes to play with. Off the field, I think one reason he was crying at the press conference when he left Barcelona, and some people were sort of skeptical about that, call it crocodile tears, why doesn't he just stay? I think he was crying partly because it was a shock to his family to have to leave when Barcelona told him, look, we can't afford to keep you pretty much under any circumstances. He had been very happy there for 20 years. His family had only ever lived there. And I think he was in shock at suddenly having to leave sort of the one place he'd ever had a family life. His When he tried to leave Barcelona in 2020, he was much more sanguine much more cheerful in a way about leaving but when he told his family in 2020 look i want to go to another club they all burst into tears his wife and his three sons and a couple of the sons didn't want to move to a new country go to a new school make new friends learn a new language and so those tears were a big shock to messi and that i think is why he had decided this summer that he wanted to stay in barcelona to have a you know a sort of declining end to his career I mean, he is already 34 and he'd sort of come to accept look I'm happy in this town my family's happy here the team is okay it's not a great team anymore but I can sort of cope I can play out my last seasons here and that was the decision he had come to 
And so having to go to Paris, I think, will be much more difficult on a human level than it will be on a footballing level. On the footballing level, do you think Pochettino tries to go with the system? I think of him as a more detail-oriented manager, especially with his days at Spurs, but kind of similar to Klopp and Guardiola. Uh, I don't know how well that would work with the collection of talent he has at PSG. Is it going to be more of a, you all are consummate professionals, here's some things they're going to be doing, now go let them not do that? I mean, already last season, I mean, I've lived in Paris these last 20 years nearly. Already last season, I, I struggled to see a very coherent tactical system. I mean, they had some great players, uh, Neymar, Mbappe, Verratti, um, Kaylor Navas in goal, one or two others. And then they had, you know, sort of more hard-running, mediocre players. But it didn't seem to fit together brilliantly. And last season, Pochettino had the problem that you had two strikers, Neymar and Mbappe, who don't really like defending, which in modern football is very unusual. Everyone goes both ways, but Neymar doesn't so much, and Mbappe neither. And now he has this problem. He has maybe three forwards who don't particularly like defending. Messi Messi doesn't defend at all. Most games, Messi, Neymar, and Mbappe. And so it's very hard to construct a very modern system to play sort of Jurgen Klopp-style football or Bayern-style football if you have a couple of forwards who aren't going to defend. So I think it's going to be a slightly more improvised system. Uh, Six or seven guys doing a lot of running behind the ball. Uh, Verratti trying to feed the the front three. It's not going to be the most coherent team in football history, but of course they have the most brilliant players. And then final couple questions I wanted to ask you relate to Barcelona, the club. Um, we know like how they find themselves now and the financial position they are in. Looking back, are there any things that you think should have been bigger red flags or in the moment were red flags for you of just like you're hearing something and thinking that doesn't make sense or you're seeing the numbers reported and thinking that also doesn't make sense? By the time I began writing this book in early 2019, they'd made most of their big mistakes already. They yeah. bought Dembele for too much money. They bought that was crazy, by the way. That and that that the negotiation for Dembele in the book, uh, it kind of my jaw dropped reading it. I'll put it that way. It was not very professional. No, no. Uh, uh, they they'd also bought Coutinho that same summer of 2017 for way too much money. And then in 2019, you know, while I was writing the book, they they were pretending to buy Neymar because Messi had said, "Look, you've got to get Neymar back." And Barcelona had looked at Neymar at that point, 27, frequently injured, party lifestyle, cost well over $200 million. And they said to themselves, you know what, we're not going to buy this guy. But they had to pretend to buy him all summer to keep Messi happy. And instead, they bought Antoine Griezmann for nearly $150 million, way too much for a 28-year-old. So, yeah, by then you started to get the sense they are making the wrong decision. Then in 2020... They started to buy these journeyman players, or not even quite journeymen, like Mateus Fernandez, who was a reserve at Palmeiras. And in the book, I try and figure out the mystery of how on earth they managed to spend well over $10 million for a guy who's a reserve at Palmeiras in Brazil, who, they've now, who they're now trying to fire by email. But he has understandably uh, fought that for wrongful dismissal. So by 2020, the money had gone. And they, were, you know, they bought Martin Braithwaite, who, with all due respect, is not the kind of player that Messi wanted to be playing with. So, yeah, I mean, by early 2020, it was a bit like writing about the Roman Empire when the barbarians are already inside the gates. And do you point to any specific moments, though, prior to 2019? Or is it just sort of a general 
decline in certain practices while at the same time they continue to win with Messi. So who cares? We're going to always win and we're going to be able to print money for forever. I mean, did they see warning signals? I mean, clearly not enough. And um, Joseph Maria Bartomeu, the president during the disastrous years, who is personally a very nice man. And, you know, but he had no preparation to be president of a big football club. He'd been head of a family company that makes the jet bridges that you walk through from plane to terminal. So you put him in a room with football agents and he's, you know, like a gazelle among lions. He doesn't know what to do. And so when Jorge Messi keeps asking Bartomeu for more money, Bartomeu always says, yeah, of course. And he's a nice guy who wants to please people. So did they see the warning signals? No, they didn't. That is distressing for Barcelona fans uh, who are listening. Uh, final question for you. Where do you personally think Barcelona should go from here? Uh, obviously, you've already said maybe returning to La Masia, La Masia isn't as easy or as maybe like easy of a solution as people might think. Where do you think they should go? And then maybe more importantly, where do you think they will go? What are the decisions they will make uh, in the next couple of years or months? I think they will go for austerity, just spending a lot less money. And so inevitably, they will give more kids a chance. They already have been this last year. So someone like uh, Oscar Minguela has come in to the team from the Masia. But I, I don't think these guys from the Masia are going to be the new Messi, Xavi, and Yester generation. So don't hold up your hopes. They will try and they are borrowing money right, left, and center. But the rules of the Spanish league make it very hard for them to kind of spe- keep spending what they were spending before. I mean, the Spanish league is asking them to shrink their wage bill to something like $200 million, which is a wage bill that's sort of at the level of Everton or Aston Villa. So it's hard to be much better than Everton or Aston Villa when you're spending the same amount of money as they are. So I could see, you know, years of pain ahead, I have to say, for Barcelona, where people still have these massive expectations, but there just isn't the money to fulfill it. And of course, we've seen this at other clubs. We've seen a, a kind of less stark version of that at Manchester United after Ferguson. We've seen a stark version of that at AC Milan, you know, 15 years ago, best team in Europe. Now, not so much, not, you know, kind of also also runs in Italy. And we've seen more dramatic declines, clubs like Leeds United and Rangers, which sort of collapsed and had huge financial crises and went down the divisions. I don't think that will happen for Barcelona, but it's not a particularly cheery period for them, I'm afraid. That feels like an ominous way to end this one, but maybe it's a good teaser for people to go read the book and learn some more. Again, The Barcelona Complex, Lionel Messi, and the making and unmaking of the world's greatest soccer club, Simon Cooper. Uh, thank you so much. The book now available. Uh, how can people read more from you, or what can they read from you? You've got at least a couple other books out there. Yeah, I mean, this year is unusual. I've published two books. Uh, one is The Barcelona Complex, and the other is um, Spies, Lies, and Exile, about the British KGB agent George Blake. And so definitely look those up and then have a look. If you Google Simon Cooper Financial Times, you'll see a lot of what I write on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. Well, thank you very much once again for being here. Listeners, thank you all so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you all again very soon.